We're going to look at the Ephesians chapter 3 uh, this morning. We're going to look at the first uh, 13 verses. So if you want to turn there in your pew Bibles or scriptures you brought with you. We've been working our way through the book of Ephesians over these uh, Sunday summers. And uh, we're going to tap into the first half of chapter 3. Uh, sometimes I hit uh, kind of phases where I want to do some woodworking. Uh, sometimes I hit some spots where I just want to do something with my hands and, and make something, create something, and, and uh, see a, a finished uh, product. Uh, sometime back, the last thing I made was a, a loft bed for um, one of our kids. I would certainly would not sell it. Um, it hasn't fallen apart yet, but it was fun to make, and it's fun to make something that somebody else uh, enjoys. If you've ever worked with wood or if you've ever created something, you know that uh, being accurate is important. Uh, it, straight means straight. Uh, 20 inches means 20 inches. Uh, it may look close, uh, but if you start putting that together and it's not completely accurate, uh, then you're going to see the revolt results uh, down the road. It's not going not to end well uh, for you. And if you're into woodworking, one thing you have is a tape measure. Okay, you need to cut something 20 inches, you use your tape measure, and that tells you what 20 inches looks like. If something needs to be square, straight, you pull out your square, and it tells you if it's uh, square or not. It tells you if it's straight or not. It tells you uh, if it's accurate. We have, uh, there's tools, if you're working with wood and other things as well, it, it, it shows you where you stand, uh, how things are going, and what you're creating, what you're trying to, to put together. Well, in the Christian life, God gives us his word as a tool, if you will, uh, a tool in the hands of, certainly in the hands of the Holy Spirit, uh, to tell us where we stand, to show us where we're at. Uh, We may look at our lives and we think, well, this is pretty straight and this is pretty accurate. When we measure it against God's word and uh, the things that are accurate, that standard, we see, well, I really am crooked. Uh, I really am not uh, measuring up as as much as I should be. Uh, It's a lot worse than I thought it was. In this passage, Ephesians uh, chapter 3, I would urge you to let it be a tool in the hands of the Holy Spirit to show you where you're at. Uh, Where are you at as a disciple, as as a Christian? How is the gospel working uh, in your heart, in your life, in your circumstances? What's it doing? How are you measuring up in light of God's word and in light of his truth. If you've been tracking with us, you know that the first three chapters of Ephesians, we don't see any commandments. Paul is not telling us to do anything. There's no instruction. He's simply telling us what God has done in a nutshell. He's telling us this is who you are. This is what God has done in your presence. This is what God has done for you. This is what God is doing in the church telling us what God has done, but nevertheless, there are implications for us uh, in believing and in trusting and in living our lives that I think we can find certainly in the first half of Ephesians chapter 3. So as you're able, with that being said, let's stand together for the reading of God's word. Uh, Ephesians chapter 3, first uh, 13 verses. Let's hear God's word to us. For this reason, I, Paul the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. 
In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been, been revealed by the Spirit to God's, God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, sharers together in the promises, promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of, his, of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence, I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, would you uh, use this passage to teach us, to sharpen us, to convict us, to encourage us? We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please be seated? The TV shows I came across in the past was a show called Locked Up Abroad, and it's kind of it's, a, it's kind of a documentary, but it's kind of a reenactment uh, kind of documentary. Maybe you've seen these shows. This Locked Up Abroad was on uh, National Geographic Channel, and what they would do is they would um, tell the story of individuals who have been locked up overseas. Uh, they've been, uh, Americans that have been locked up in, in Mexico or in Taiwan, or the Philippines, or in Russia, or you name it. Uh, it, For whatever reason, criminal purposes or other purposes, they've been uh, arrested or taken captive and and locked up in this foreign environment. In one episode uh, of Locked Up Abroad, they ran a story about Mark and Gracia Barnum. Mark and Gracia Barnum were uh, missionaries uh, in 2002 um, stationed in the Philippines. And uh, Mark was uh, a pilot, missionary pilot, and so he would fly, uh, he'd serve as a pilot for missionaries and for various uh, projects and service things there. And uh, they were, um, it was honeymoon time, I believe it was their honeymoon, and they were living in the Philippines. I keep wanting to say Philippians, but they lived living in the Philippines, and um, they went to this nice resort to celebrate, uh, I believe, their, their anniversary. And uh, while they were there, uh, these Muslim terrorists came took over the compound and took about 20 hostages, and the Barnums were one of those uh, folks that were uh, kidnapped, taken hostage, and for a little bit more than a year, uh, these two and others uh, were held hostage by this Muslim extremist group. And uh, of course, they were, uh, as their captives, uh, they had to uh, do what they were told. Uh, Much of their time was spent uh, walking and hiking because they the uh, military was trying to find them and to, to rescue uh, these people that had been taken uh, hostage. And so they'd wander the jungle, not wander the jungle, but they'd be in the jungle on the run, uh, uh, mountains and all this kind of stuff, and they'd have to carry uh, the s- supplies, the stuff, for, for the terrorist groups. And they would have to do various chores for them while they were out and about. 
Uh, at one point, uh, Martin, uh, the, the husband, was forced to uh, repair their satellite phone. Uh, and he says this about that experience. He said to his wife, the Bible says we're to serve the Lord with gladness. Let's go all the way. Let's serve him all the way with gladness. And so you see that the sense of what they're doing while they're being held hostage, uh, they saw themselves still as missionaries, still as, hey, God can still use us in this situation. Uh, at one point, or at some point, you know, the, the nighttime would come and they'd be settling down. And the, the guards, or the people that were holding them hostage, uh, they weren't real eager to go over there and, and lock them up or tie them down. Or, um, because every time they go over there, uh, they would talk about the gospel with them. You know, they would begin to witness to them about Jesus Christ and who he was. And, and you walk away from this testimony that they give and how they spent their time there, you realize quickly that the gospel has made a big difference in their lives. It's not something that they just kind of mechanically checked off uh, in, their, in their spiritual life, religious life, but they believe this. They, they treasure this, this truth. It's the most important thing uh, out there, and they're still talking about it, and it's shaping how they're there. Well, that, like I said, they were held hostage for a little bit more than a year, um, and during the rescue attempt, they're out in the jungle, uh, Martin, the, the husband, he was shot in the chest, and he uh, died of, of his wounds. And his wife, Gracia, she was shot in the leg, but she survived, and she has written a book, uh, In the Presence of My Enemies, which is a testimony about this account. Uh, if you want to learn more, just Google In the Presence of My Enemies, and you should come across a, a YouTube page where she's given testimony and in at least one church about her experience there. But again, the, the gospel is, is real to them, and it's how they viewed their time in captivity. You read uh, a passage like this in, in Ephesians chapter 3, and you see that the, the gospel has gripped Paul. It's more than a message, but it's a truth that he centers his life around, and it's had a deep impact on his life. It shapes his agenda. It shapes his schedule. It shapes shapes how he views uh, different things coming into his life. And so what I want to do with this passage is ask it, it, let us ask a question of ourselves. How is the gospel changing me? As we reflect on this passage, ask yourself, how is the gospel changing me? What is it doing in my life? And there's three ways I think we can see this change, or three ways we see the impact on the gospel in our lives. And I'm going to walk through uh, three of them uh, for us. The first one is this, the gospel frees us, frees us to put others ahead of ourselves. The gospel frees us up to put others, to put others ahead of ourselves. And let me set it up like this. You look at verse 1, Paul says, for this reason. He writes, for this reason. And then if you go down to verse 14, he says it again, for this reason. The reason he's doing that uh, is because he's, in chapter, in verse 1, he's beginning for this reason, he's about to pray. Is what we're going to see next week. But before he starts to pray, he says, let me take a detour. Let me, let me take a detour real briefly. Because I'm sure you can hear the words, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, uh, the recipients of this letter, and they begin to, whoa, what, you're a prisoner? What has happened to you? And they begin to think about Paul's circumstances, his suffering, what, what has happened to him. And Paul says this. He says, I bet they're wondering about what's going on. Because in verse uh, 13, he says, I don't want them to be uh, discouraged. And Paul's taking like a pastoral time out. And he's saying to himself, you know, I bet they could be uh, thrown off 
disappointed and really discouraged by the fact that I'm in, in jail, that they, they know me, and here I am in this horrible situation, and it feels like the momentum of the gospel and, and the church and everything that's been going on, it's, it's come to a stop or maybe being uh, stomped out. And he wants to write them and says, this is what's going on. Uh, this is why I am here. He says in, in verse uh, 1 there, he says that the reason I'm in prison is not because I robbed a bank, but the reason I'm in prison is just because I'm a Christian. I haven't done anything wrong. The only thing I've done is live out my faith, and because of that I've been put in prison, and we'll talk about a little bit more of the details uh, about that uh, later on. But he says I'm in prison, and part of the reason I'm in prison is for your sake. You see it in verse 1. He says, for the sake of you Gentiles. Paul, I, Paul, and a prisoner, for the sake of you Gentiles. And then he says it again, basically, in verse 13. My sufferings for you, which are your glory. And so he's bracketed or bookended this passage. I'm in prison. I'm suffering for your sake. I'm, what I'm doing, uh, I see what's happening to me as a benefit uh, to you, as a benefit for you. Think about it like this. This helped when I was heard explain like this. Uh, if you've been a parent, you know what it's like to be a parent. You know what it's like to, to sacrifice and to, and to give up and to do things. And most of the time you do that, that parenting, that, that giving up, you don't even think about it because it's for the good of your child. It's because it's for their benefit. Imagine it's the end of the, your, your budget year at home and you're looking over your budget and you're looking over your expenses, and you see, man, I've spent $10,000 on my child this year. And you look at that number, and it's a huge number, but you're like, that's great. That's fine. You're content with that because it's for your child. It's for them. It's for their benefit. You're glad to do it. That's not a sacrifice for you. But if you looked at your budget, and you see that $10,000 is just gone, it just, it just fell into Lake Marion. It just, you didn't get to spend it on yourself. You didn't get to buy a boat. You didn't get to go on vacation with that money. You didn't get that, uh, a new car. You didn't do any of that. It would feel pointless. It would feel frustrating. It would feel uh, this was uh, no need for this uh, to happen. I just lost this. And that would be deeply disturbing to you. But when you're a parent and you're spending $10,000 on your, on, your, on your child, it's like this is not a big deal at all because you know it's for their benefit. You're willing to sacrifice. You're willing to, to suffer, if you will, because it's going to build them up. That's Paul's perspective. Yes, I'm in prison. Yes, you know, all things being equal, I would rather not be in prison. But the reason I'm here is for you. It has benefits for you. And you're thinking, okay, how is this a benefit? How is Paul being in prison a benefit for these, these Gentiles, for these other believers? Well, one of the reasons, I think, one of the benefits is this. Here's Paul in prison, and he's trusting God with it. He's doing it out of dependence upon the Lord. He does it uh, in the context of this is what God's will is for me in my life. And what he's doing is he's modeling suffering. He's modeling hardship. This is what it looks like to walk with God, to embrace God's sovereign plan or God's providence in your life, even in difficulty. All of us have been around people who are, who, are, who are going through really hard times. And you see how they respond to it. And when you're going through a hard time, the last person you care about is somebody else. 
Uh, you don't care what they, they think, what they feel. It's all about you and, and your experience and how horrible this is because you're so weighted down by it and you just get this tunnel vision about what's happening in your life. Nothing else matters. You don't care if you have the wrong response. Uh, you don't care if you're, you're disappointing other people. You don't care if, if you're giving up or, or you know, doing all these uh, just devastating th- things that are making things even worse for you. It doesn't matter. And what does that do to you? It drags you down. And Paul is saying, I, as I embrace my suffering, as I embrace being a prisoner, I'm doing it for you. I'm modeling what it looks like to trust God with suffering. And when you see that, it builds them up. It's strengthening them in their faith. You've been around individuals who are going through this hard experience or something traumatic has suddenly come into their lives. that They've lost somebody or some kind of tragedy. And you see how they respond in faith. And you're amazed by it. And you wonder, I don't know if I could do that. You're being built up. You're being strengthened. And that's Paul's perspective. He is freed up. The gospel has freed him up to, to put others first, uh, to live in such a way as it benefits them. That's the first point. Uh, the second one is, is this. The gospel changes our understanding of what God is doing. The gospel changes our understanding of what God is doing and by doing, I mean what he's doing in the world, what his priorities are. For example, he says at two places, grace was given to me. Paul says grace was given to me. In verse 2, he's referring to this revelation that was given to him. And we'll talk about that in a moment. In verse 7, he's referring to uh, the grace that was given to him that relates to ministry. Uh, to be a steward of the, of the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul saw to, to have the gospel means to steward it. Not just you, it doesn't end with you, it certainly is, is for you, but it's for others as well. And there's a responsibility uh, to pass it on to others. And then related to this, there's the word mystery. It's mentioned three times in this passage. Mystery, mystery, mystery. What does that mean? What is the mystery that he's talking about? Well, think about what a mystery is. A mystery is something that was not known or something that was hidden and now has been revealed. Particularly that, that most of the time that mystery comes to light or is made known by somebody else. Somebody else initiates you into an understanding of a truth and, and a reality. And in this point, Paul's talking about the mystery as uh, the gospel. Uh, certainly, it, basically, it's chapter 2. Uh, the beginning of chapter 2, God making those who are spiritually dead alive in Christ. But particularly the last half of chapter 2. If you are here with us last week, you know this. That God is doing what? He's creating a church. And he doesn't care who's involved in the church. He doesn't discriminate who's involved in the church. He's creating a church full of Jews and Gentiles. People with different ethnic backgrounds, different cultures, different races, different uh, experiences. He's building one church, one new humanity. That is the mystery. That is the, the wisdom of God that he's bringing together one race, one people. Jew and Gentile. And the takeaway for us is this, that Paul is saying this is what God is doing. This is what is important. God is making this mystery known. God is at work fulfilling this this work, this act of building up his church. And that's what the Bible is about. That's what Jesus is doing in our midst, in our worlds. And that's the thing we should care about. For example, think about it in comparison to what we hear on on TV all the time or what our culture talks about all the time. Our culture loves to talk about marriages and divorces. 
I mean, how much coverage do we need of the royal wedding? Uh, our, our culture loves to talk about uh, peace treaties. Uh, you think about the, the conversation about North Korea and, and their, what's going on over there. Or um, another segment is what we need about the Iran uh, nuclear deal. You know, all the time that's, that's spent in the news on those things. But God in the Bible is about t- proclaiming that there is a war going on between good and evil between who God is and what he is doing, establishing his church and his kingdom, that that's what God is at work doing. Our our culture loves to talk about ISIS and and terrorism and immigration laws and and building a wall and all this kind of stuff. And I'm not saying that, that stuff has its place somewhere, but it's not the heartbeat of the Bible. It's not the heartbeat of what God is doing. God wants to build a church. He wants to build his church full of different people, different races, different cultures. He's calling people to himself. He's been doing it for years, and he's continuing to do it. That is his drive. That is his, that's his vision. That's the point of the gospel. It's the point of the scripture. And so in light of that, that vision, that, the heartbeat of God, what are you concerned about? What do you care about? What dominates your time? What gets you excited? What gets you angry what makes you scared? What makes you joyful? Uh, Ephesians, it gives us this picture of God is at work, and he's going to continue to be at work. He's going to build his church, and the gates of hell are not going to prevent it. Nothing is going to stop it. And Paul has this grand vision of that, and it's captured his life. The last thing is this. The gospel shapes our perspective on suffering. The gospel shapes our perspective on suffering it gives us a different view of our, of our disappointments, of our disoccur- disoccur- discouragements. It gives us a different view of our circumstances. Verse 1, Paul says simply, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. The first thing to notice here is that Paul says he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus. But reality is what? He's not a prisoner of, of Christ. Physically, he is a prisoner of Caesar. He is a prisoner of the emperor. He's in jail because he's got to be put forth on trial. He's probably, at this point, he's probably been in jail for about three to four years. It's more like a house arrest, and he's chained to this um, guard that's with him 24-7. Uh, he can't travel freely, but he can, certainly visitors are approaching him. And Paul says that the reason I'm in prison is not because of Caesar, not because of the emperor. The reason I'm in prison is because of Christ Jesus. The reason I'm in prison ultimately is because God wants me in prison. And as a servant of Christ, Paul says, I'm okay with that. I'm at peace with that. I'm content with that. Uh, I am his prisoner. He can do with me as he wills, as he wants. And I think this, Paul's perspective, when he says, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, it gives us a window, it gives us a, a, a glimpse of how Paul views suffering, how he views hardship, how he views difficult circumstances. In Paul's mind, I'm a prisoner of Christ. I am his servant. And if he brings me into difficult things, if he makes me a, a prisoner in jail, then okay. I'm, I'm serving him. If this is what he wants for my life, then that's fine by me. Think about the different ways we deal with suffering or deal with disappointments, discouragements in our lives. One view is kind of the stoic view. As Christians, we can have the stoic view that says, you know, yes, this is hard. This was a hard report I heard from my doctor or 
this is uh, hard to hear what's going on in my children's lives. But you know what? I'm just going to go along and just kind of grin and bear it. I'm not going to talk about it. I'm not going to cry about it. I'm just going to stiff upper lip and just kind of move through it. That's fine. But sometimes you're going to be brought into suffering, into difficulty that's beyond your capabilities. That's going to overwhelm you, and you need more than a stoic view. Another view of suffering says, the biggest problem in my life is my suffering. That's the biggest problem in my life, is my suffering. If I could just get rid of this suffering, get rid of this discouragement, get rid of this disappointment, then my life would be great. If I can just get to a place where I'm comfortable, then I'm set. The biggest problem in my life is my suffering, and I have to do whatever it takes to relieve that suffering. Again, that's fine, but the problem you're going to have is God is always going to be a disappointment to you. He's always going to be a disappointment because he doesn't live to relieve you of your suffering, of your difficulty. He doesn't live to make you comfortable 24-7, where it's never awkward, it's never a challenge. That's not what we see in Scripture. For example, think about that, that couple we talked about at the beginning that were, that were held hostage by that terrorist group. At one point, they're uh, wandering the jungle, and they're carrying around uh, their, um, uh, their captive stuff and their gear. And you can imagine after days and days and days of being held captive, and you don't know when you're going to be released. You don't know if you're going to be released. You don't know what the next day holds. And Gracia, the, the wife of, of Martin, at one point um, says to her husband, I want to see these men burn in hell. I mean, just the, the most, that just a hateful, angry, wrathful, how could they do this to me? How could they do this to us? I want to see them burn in hell for what they're doing to us. And Martin turns to her and says, Gracie, you do not want to see that. Do you know what you're saying? The wrath of God. You want to see the wrath of God poured out. You know how big a deal that is. You, you can't want that uh, for them. And what he means is, it's just certainly you would never wish that upon anybody, wishing for grace uh, in, their, in their lives because of just the, the seriousness of God's wrath. And I guess they, they continued to walk along as they had that merit, moment of marriage uh, moment together. And Gracia began to, to kind of think about and process what her husband said, and she realized how hateful she had been. She realized how much coveting she had had in her heart, all the stuff that her captives had that she didn't have, like a comfortable pillow or, or food or something like that, the coveting, that the hateful, the hatred that was in her heart, and she began to confess. And this example, the most important thing in your life is not your suffering. The most urgent need in your life is to deal with your sin. That's why Jesus came, to deal with our sin. It, from God's perspective, God's understanding of us, what we need the most is his grace and his mercy and to deal with the sin in our lives. And you look at Paul in this passage, he's looking at his circumstances through the truth of the calling that's upon him to be a servant of Christ, to walk with him and to know him. It's like Paul is, is taken in and he's looked at chapter uh, 2 and he's amazed by it. He says, God, how could you save me, a sinner? It's the most beautiful thing to him. The wisdom of God that he would want to bring together Jew and Gentile, this message of the gospel, the message of what God is doing, is so captured him, and it runs so deep in his life. 
It's so central to all that he is because it's true and it's real. He says, I just live to serve you. I want to be your servant. God, I belong to you. You've done this all for me, in me, and through me. I want to be your servant. And that's how he's able to deal with being a prisoner. That's how he's able to to look at his circumstances and say, if you want to be a prisoner, that's fine. I still get to please you. I get to still get to serve and glorify you. And if I die, then I go to glory. There's something incredible and, and, and magnificent waiting for me. Let me close with this example. So you have two uh, gentlemen, two individuals, and uh, one fellow works as a salesperson. It doesn't matter what he's selling, but he loves his job as a salesman. Loves it, talking to people, uh, presenting his product because he believes in it and he loves it. But his hobby is playing golf. He loves to play golf, and he's a good golfer. Uh, he beats his friend, beats his friends all the time whenever they play. Uh, then there's another fellow. He's a salesman too, salesperson too. Um, and he loves the game of golf. But it's more than a hobby for him. He would rather do that full time. That's what I want to do is play golf. I want to be a professional. And so these two individuals love the game. They're good at the game. They're competent at it. And uh, opportunity comes along to play in the U.S. Open. Well, to play in the U.S. Open, you've got to qualify for it. You've got to shoot a certain score uh, to qualify to play in that tournament. And so they get to the, the, go to the place where you can qualify for it, and they play, and they both fall short. They both don't make it. They're both rejected. They don't shoot uh, low enough scores uh, to, to qualify for this. They're both disappointed. The one that plays it as a hobby, he's disappointed, but life goes on. He's got his job, and he loves what he's doing, and it pleases him. The other fellow is crushed. It's devastated. It's a dream broken. Uh, he, he can't go on because it's more than a hobby. It's what he wants to do. Paul is saying in this passage here, I live to please God. I'm his servant. I'm his bondservant. I'm, I'm a slave of Christ. I'm his prisoner. And if I can please him and serve him by being in this situation here, that's fine. If I get released, that's fine too. And if I die... And when I die, there's an incredible glory waiting for me. Are you at the point in your life where the gospel is that real to you? Where God's word is that real to you? The truth of what he has done for you, the grace that's been poured out into your life, does it capture your heart? Does it capture your imagination? Does it focus, does it get you to turn your eyes towards other people, other lost people that don't know him, and that need him. What's it doing in your life? Let's pray and ask him to work. Father, would you make us a people uh, that live to please you? Father, we uh, struggle to do that because our own uh, desires and our own wants and our own fears uh, can enslave us. But we pray that the richness of of what you've done would begin to change us, would begin to shape us. So I pray that the gospel would would humble us, and it would show us our weakness, 
so that you can be made strong and that you can make us a people who uh, live to serve you and to, and to please you. And we ask in Christ's name. Amen.